Good morning. Well, I appreciate your pastor, and I've got to know Kyle Lee as well, and and uh, so they are godly men. You're in good hands in their shepherding of this flock, and I appreciate the invitation uh, by Pastor Ted to come pitch in in the middle of his series. He's been teaching you through 1 Corinthians, I think along with some of the other elders, and so he's already looked at 1 Corinthians 5, and then 1 Corinthians 6 deals with lawsuits briefly, and then goes back to some of the other big troubles that were going on in the church at Corinth. Uh, Before we talk about those lawsuits, let me chase a quick rabbit just as a matter of uh, background and for your interest about where I've been involved I haven't updated my website for a while. Ted said I've been doing this 40 years. It's actually 48 years. Uh, I just turned 73 this week on Valentine's Day, uh, the, uh, the day before the Chiefs parade and a couple of days after their Super Bowl victory. And so it was a great birthday present. I want to thank Pat Mahomes and <laughs> Travis Kelsey for that wonderful present uh, that made turning 73 not quite so bad. When I was 31, it was 1981, I was in a two-man law practice. Uh, James M. Smart was my partner. I, he and I both had been in the JAG Corps, Army uh, Judge Advocate General Corps, and we got out and we were practicing together in Kansas City. Uh, and a couple of college students came in to Jim's office while I was still at Fort Riley, Kansas in the Army. And they said they were having a Bible study in the student union for four plus years without any incident, no disruption, no problems, no questions. But the dean of students had approached them, Gary Widmar, had approached them in 1977, and they said, what really goes on in your meetings? And they said, well, what do you mean? He says, well, what, what kind of group is this? They said, well, it's a Bible club. It's a student-led, student-initiated Bible club, and we meet in the student union. And he says, but what do you do? And he said, well, we pray. And Gary Woodmar says, and that means you close your eyes or look at your shoes and you say mutually self-affirming things about other people in the group. He said, no, we talk to God and we think God really hears us when we pray. And, and he says, and what else? And he said, and we also open the book and read the Bible. And he said, well, that's kind of like reading a John Gresham novel, right? You're doing a book study. They said, no, sir. We think God is speaking to us. It's his revealed word. And so we think we speak to God through prayer. He speaks to us through scripture and we get together and then we worship uh, with worship songs and hymns. And he says, I'm sorry you put it that way. He said, if you just said that you have book, a book club that does mutual affirming things together, that'd be okay. But he said, the Missouri Constitution has what's called the Blaine Amendment, named after a, a senator from Maine named James Blaine, he got amendments passed in 30 plus states around the country, and Missouri's one of them, who adopted the Blaine Amendment that's even more restrictive than the United States Constitution's First Amendment regarding there being no establishment of religion. In Missouri, it says you cannot directly or indirectly provide any financial aid to a church or religious group uh, for worship and teaching. 
And the dean of students, Gary Widmar, told these students, you have admitted what you're doing is religious worship and teaching. Now, the Guru Maharaji's group meets next door to you, and they said they are engaged in the scientific discipline of mind control. They didn't say they're doing transcendental Eastern religious meditation. They said it's mind control, and so they can continue to meet, but your group has admitted you're violating the Missouri Constitution. It must stop. And so Jim Smart and I wrote a letter to the university thinking we could clear up this confusion with a few paragraphs, and they said, no, no, we mean it. It violates the state and the U.S. Constitution, no establishment of religion. And so we filed a lawsuit. Now, Gary Widmar may have been a church member somewhere. We didn't really ask, are you a Christian? We sued the University of Missouri, my alma mater. And uh, we thought we'll get this straightened out. Trial judge will take a look at it. And the trial judge sat on it for 18 months. We filed in 77, and it was past uh, early 1980 uh, when Judge Collinson in Kansas City finally ruled. And oh, by the way, in between that time, the Jonestown Guyana massacre heard 900 some people drank poison Kool Aid. Uh, at the behest of a cultic preacher named Jim Jones, and America was in shock about the dangers of religion in the public square. And so Judge Collinson, sure enough, writes an opinion in which he said, you know, there is a free exercise of religion clause in the First Amendment, and there's a free speech clause that says government can't censor free speech. But he said there's an exception to those freedoms, and the exception is no establishment of religion clause and the Missouri Blaine Amendment. Those are exceptions to the free speech rules. And we all know the dangers of religion. Uh, all, how many people have died in wars and in cult groups uh, imposing their will on people unwillingly. And so he ruled against the students and said they could not meet in the Student Union campus on the same basis that every other wacky group. Groups like the Students for a Democrat Society advocated the armed overthrow of the United States government. They could meet. But these students studying the Bible, praying to God, and singing praise songs like we've done here this morning couldn't meet because it violated, he said, the U.S. Constitution. So we appealed to the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals, and we won two to one. And we heaved a sigh of relief. And then the university asked to appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court. Well, about seven or 8,000 cases get appealed to the Supreme Court every year, and about 70 get granted. Back in that day, it's down to about 30 cases today. But the chances were slim and none that the university would uh, prevail or that the court would grant their appeal. But we still filed a vigorous brief begging the Supreme Court not to take the appeal. Why wouldn't we want the court to hear our appeal? Why wouldn't you want to go up to the, to the next level? Because we had won at the appeals court level. And if the Supreme Court says, well, let's take another look at this, then that's a bad sign, folks. And yet that's what happened in 1981. Early 1981, the U.S. Supreme Court said, appeal granted, we're going to hear this case. And over the summer of that year, Ronald Reagan appointed the first woman associate justice of the Supreme Court. And a week after she was confirmed, Sandra Day O'Connor had her first week on the job in her first case on religious freedom was from Missouri about the Missouri Blaine Amendment, Widmar versus Vincent. And Smart and Whitehead, two young attorneys, I was 31, my partner was 35, from Kansas City, Missouri, 
We, our, our normal case was not, normal day at work was not working on Supreme Court cases. Our normal day was working on auto accident cases, wills, trusts, dog bite cases. That was a particular niche I really enjoyed. We, we were not God's gift to constitutional law by a stretch. I hadn't been to the Supreme Court until we went there to argue the first week in October in 1981. And two months later, they worked more quickly back in that day than they do today. Two months later on December 8, 1981, the court voted 8 to 1 in favor of the students. And they said there is no exception to the free speech and free exercise clause. Religious freedom is the first freedom, not the last. And the establishment clause is not a barrier to free exercise by private students who happen to be in a public building. That doesn't transform this into worships being sponsored by the state. It's freedom being sponsored by the state, and the state must grant equal access to religious student groups so they can exercise their religious freedom freely with other kinds of free speech on campus. That was 1981. Fast forward 36 years later, it was Neil Gorsuch's first week on the job. He'd just been appointed and confirmed by the Senate and sworn in by, the pres by President Trump. And Neil Gorsuch's first religious liberty case was from Missouri. It was Trinity Lutheran Church of Columbia, Missouri versus Comer. It involved the Department of Natural Resources making shredded tires available for nonprofit organizations to use on surfacing playgrounds for any, any nonprofit in the state could apply for a grant of getting the shredded tire material and getting a fund, a small stipend to help pay the costs of installing the surfacing. And Trinity Lutheran Church had applied for the grant and had been granted based on a score chart that they used to evaluate what sort of public benefit would this particular playground have. The state said Trinity Lutheran Church was not just using this for their own church activities. They had a daycare operation, a preschool that was available to members of the community. And because of the benefit to the broad public, Trinity Lutheran was ranked on a point scale, and out of 55 applicants, they ranked number five. So the secretary called and said, good news, you get the grant. And the president of the church, a retired captain from the military, said, uh, well, that's wonderful. And uh, she called him back the next day and says, oops, legal department has just reviewed the application, and they realized you can't get the grant because of Missouri's Blaine Amendment. This would be giving direct or indirect financial aid to a church uh, which is engaged in religious worship and teaching, and obviously we can't do that. And the captain from the Air Force said, Ma'am, what was your first clue that we were a church? On our application form, the word Trinity, the word Lutheran, or the word church? Wh which tipped you off first that we're a church seeking permission? And you called me and said, We won. We she said, Well, you would have won except for the fact you're a church. And he said, would you put that in an email? And she did. And that's what lawyers like to call the smoking gun email. We took that, made a demand that they treat churches equally to every other nonprofit organization that was eligible. And they refused. And so we filed a lawsuit against the Department of Natural Resources and the executive director, Ms. Comer. And uh, the trial court, we lost badly. The trial judge blistered us. She said, how dare you? Try to dip your hands into the public coffers to have the state of Missouri pay for your 
surfacing on your playground? And we responded, Your Honor, we all pay the same 50 cent per tire rebate fee when we buy church bus tires or vehicles owned by the church. So everyone contributes to that fund. We're not asking for public dollars. We're asking for participation in a benefit program you've made available that's neutral as to religion. We just want to be treated like any other group and not discriminated against based on religion. The Court of Appeals ruled against us. So we're uh, uh, 0-2 at this point. And now we appealed to the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, And uh, the U.S. Supreme Court granted the appeal. And so in the uh, first week on Neil Gorsuch's being on the job uh, at council table was Jonathan Whitehead that uh, Ted referred to, my son, and I was seated uh, right behind him and we were there with a team from Alliance Defending Freedom that I work with on a number of public interest uh, law type cases involving religious liberty. And uh, a year later, close to a year later, the court No, excuse me, it was just two months later in that case, too. Two months later, the court, before June 30 of 2017, ruled in favor of the church and said churches cannot be discriminated against simply because of their religion. You can't force them to give up their religious status as a condition for participating in a neutral public benefit program that everybody else can participate in. And so then I told you that the Widmar case was decided back in 1981 on December 8. Well, fast forward 40 years later. And on December 8, 1981, the court heard the case of Carson versus Macon involving a request by three Christian parents, three sets of Christian parents in the state of Maine, asking that they would get access to a tuition aid program that was available to any parent in the state of Maine that they could take a grant of tuition aid in an amount equal roughly to the per capita cost of educating a student and they could use that at any private school except for the Attorney General said of Maine you can't use it at a religious school and we thought that was discriminatory violated the Trinity Lutheran principle that we had won in 2017 so we took that case Uh, to the court and they heard the oral argument in that case 40 years to the date after uh, the uh, Widmar versus Vincent case was announced and then the following spring the court ruled uh, 6-3 to in favor of the Christian parents and said you can't discriminate against parents who are seeking to use a benefit program that's available to everybody else to use at any other private school, and they want to use it at a religious private school, that's parental choice. That's not government funding religion. That's government funding education, and the parents provide the circuit breaker. It's their choice that is the religious choice, not the government's choice in funding to parents. Interesting detail as to why Maine had that program is in the state of Maine there are 260 school districts. 143 don't have a public high school. Think about that. It's such a rural state that 143 of their public school districts don't have a public high school. So if you're in that school district, they said you can either go to another school uh, in the county that's a a public school or any private school in the state, and we'll write a check to you for the amount of money of about $7,500, and you can spend it at any private school 
except for religious schools. But the court ruled you have to, if you make it available to parents to spend at any private school, you have to treat religious parents equally. You cannot discriminate against them simply because of their religion. It's called equal access. So those have become kind of the bookends of my career. From age 31 until age 73, the Lord has given me opportunity to be involved in some of the cases involving religious freedom at the highest levels of law practice, including before the U.S. Supreme Court, largely as a result of my work with as an allied attorney, a volunteer attorney, with Alliance Defending Freedom, uh, the nation's largest religious liberty, pro-family, pro pro-life legal organization now that the Lord has blessed with, I think, about 15 wins before the U.S. Supreme Court. I, for the last uh, four years, have served on the board of directors of ADF uh, and uh, have been involved with my son, Jonathan, on a number of other cases at the trial level and appellate level, and not just those cases that wind up before the U.S. Supreme Court. But I want to talk to you this morning about lawsuits at the trial level Lawsuits at the local level that involve Christian versus Christian. And the Bible has something to say about that subject. Uh, Pastor Ted jumped over it as he taught through chapters 5 and 6. But he talked to you about the troubles in the Corinthian church with all the divisiveness, the worldly philosophies that were infiltrating the church and the church leaders weren't disciplining the body, weren't expelling those wrong doctrines and wrong philosophies and the self-promotion and the partiality and the choosing favorites. And then chapter 5 talked about the uh, church tolerating uh, immorality of such a wild nature it would have shocked uh, the pagans. They would have been embarrassed to see a man having a sexual relationship with his father's wife, apparently his stepmom. He, he's in a sexually immoral relationship with his stepmom, and the church was taking the position, well, we want to be inclusive here at First Baptist of Corinth, and we want to make sure that everybody feels welcome. And so we don't want to judge anybody because the Bible says, uh, judge not lest ye be judged. And so we don't want to judge anyone and the Apostle Paul scolded them vigorously and said, Jesus also said, judge righteous judgment. You've got to apply those principles in balance and in context. And the context is the church must call sin, sin. It's the duty of the church. You must be able to label, as Pastor Ted said. And another way to say it is the phrase that tolerating vice excuse me, tolerating sin is no virtue. And intolerance toward evil is no vice. Let me say that again. Toleration of sin is no virtue. And intolerance of evil is no vice. Today, the favorite verse of America is, judge not lest ye be judged. Because they think that gives license to do whatever you want. Nobody can judge you. Nobody has the right to tell you that's wrong. And they, they think that's the only verse we really need. I, I, we really uh, like the Christian religion because it says, Judge not lest ye be judged. But that's the farthest thing from the lessons that the Apostle Paul was 
sternly warning this church that was flourishing and prosperous and gifted in so many ways, but it now was falling under the influence of corruption that it was letting the world in, in the corrupt philosophies, uh, the corrupt political ambitions that were warring and the factions within the church, and now the corrupt immorality that they were tolerating and bragging about it. Uh, and, and now we also see in this chapter 6, they were allowing in the corruption of lawsuits and a mindset of, uh, of almost treating lawsuits like they were a spectator sport. Not, not too far from America. America loves lawsuits. They love legal thrillers from Perry Mason to John Gresham novels. Uh, uh, America loves crime is, uh, dramas on television where they wind up in the courtroom trying to see what the lawyers can do to prove somebody's guilty or to get the guilty person off. America is thrilled by litigation to the point that it desensitizes us on what the Bible has clearly taught regarding lawsuits between Christians. Before I go there, before we look at the passage together, let me uh, talk a little bit about our statement of faith as Baptists. Uh, how many of you have heard the phrase, the Baptist Faith and Message 2000? Anybody heard that phrase before? That's a statement of the faith developed by pastors and theologians and lay people working together on committees in the Southern Baptist Convention to develop a statement, human statements of what we think the Bible says. We summarize a number of verses by putting them in statements of faith, and, and then we number those statements, and, and uh, it becomes a yardstick on ministering together. Uh, it's not a matter that you have to sign this as a creed in order to join this particular local Baptist church, but this church, in cooperating with other churches throughout the convention, can have some reassurance that the entities, like the International Mission Board, North American Mission Board, Midwestern Seminary, they all affirm that they will teach consistent with and not contrary to our statement of faith. One of those principles of the statement of faith is Article uh, 17 on religious liberty. Let me read this to you quickly. God alone is the Lord of the conscience, and he has left it free from the doctrines and the commandments of men which are contrary to the word or not contained in it. Church and state should be separate. You've heard the fact that the phrase separation of church and state is not in our U.S. Constitution. The courts have tried to use that as the phrase in order to discriminate against religion. And I was thrilled in 2017 when Justice Sotomayor wrote a dissenting opinion in our Trinity Lutheran Church case. She said, with, you could almost hear the quiver in her voice. She said, now the separation of church and state has become a mere slogan instead of a constitutional doctrine. And I praise the Lord. That's exactly what it's always been. It's a slogan. It's a phrase. It's a human statement. It's not the text of the Constitution. The justices should apply the text of the Constitution and not just phrases that came out of letters from Thomas Jefferson to a group of Baptists in Danbury, uh, Connecticut. But our statement of faith does use that phrase... Uh, and it was, I think, first used in 1963. It was a popularized phrase. It's become more and more popular. But it's been used by some strict separation groups to the extreme that they would exclude religion in the public square. 
And so uh, uh, we state the principle, but understand it has to be balanced with some other principles that are also in our statement of faith. It says, the state owes every church protection and full freedom in the pursuit of its spiritual ends. Civil government being ordained by God, it is the duty of Christians to render loyal obedience therein in all things not contrary to the revealed will of God. Interesting phrase, civil government is ordained by God. We call these divine institutions. God has created for all men, not just for believers, He's created for all men and women divine institutions. The first divine institution was marriage and family. God intended that for human flourishing for all people. Second divine institution created in the New Testament is the church, the people of God. God's desire is that none should perish, that all would come to Christ and be a part of the universal church, but he created the institution for blessing of families that they'd be part of a local assembly called the church. And he's provided for order and discipline of that body in his word, including the book of 1 Corinthians that you've been studying. And then he's created the third divine institution, civil government and law. That means civil government and law is not a dirty word. As Ted said, believing God has called you to farming is an honorable profession. That's God's will for you if he's called you to be a farmer. If he's called you to be a preacher, you obey God's will for you to be called to be a preacher. But if he's called you to work in the field of law, that's an honorable calling. It's not corrupt. It's not perverse. Now, there are corrupt lawyers and judges and juries like they're in every profession. But the institution was ordained by God. And our statement in the faith says we as believers seek to try to support civil government and influence it. <clears throat> There's another article in our statement of the faith on civil government and the law uh, in which the, the, the statement of the faith says that the teaching of Scripture is that we should try to bring to bear Christian influence on industry, that's business, and on government, and on every area, every aspect of public life, we want to influence those institutions for the blessing of people by influencing them according in, in, in manners consistent with the Word of God. <clears throat> so we're, we still have a system of freedom where people can choose freely not to believe but we're going to protect the freedom to believe and, work and live out your faith in the public square and in the marketplace uh, as in, and believe that working for electing godly public officials, electing godly judges that will pass and interpret laws that are compatible, consistent with Christian biblical principle and Christian conscience. All that means that the law is not something corrupt or evil or something to be avoided. Uh, and yet, we have this 1 Corinthians 6 passage that gives a particular warning to the Corinthian church about their abuse, their abuse of handling of uh, the, the uh, law system. Uh, 
But I, I want, before that, I wanted to read one other verse, Romans 13, 1 to 4. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, uh, and th those that exist have been instituted by God. So we keep in mind our respect for government is certainly reinforced both by Old Testament law and by New Testament principle that we, that we see government as ordained by God and something that we support something that can work for good, uh, uh, especially in a democratic re constitutional republic, uh, as the Lord has blessed American citizens with, we have the privilege of seeking to influence uh, this divine institution uh, for human flourishing consistent with Scripture. <clears throat> and yet, the Old Testament also records then it came to the Jewish people, before the church was founded, the Jewish people, as the people of God, were a little bit ingrown and very proud of the fact that they were the Jews and they had their own system. And so history tells us that rabbinical law generally forbade Jews from suing fellow Jews in Gentile state courts. But they were directed to take disputes to rabbinical courts in their synagogue. The main objection seems to be the notion that such behavior indicated a valuation of secular laws as being better somehow, or at least as good, as Jewish law, which they thought came from God, or at least from the rabbis. The rabbis wanted to keep the Jews out of, quote, the clutches of the Gentiles, in which the Jews, quote, life as well as property is in jeopardy. So there was a level of contempt toward the legal system of the state, the government, held by the Jewish rabbis and hence the rabbinical tradition, Jews shouldn't be in court. And that would have been the tradition that the Apostle Paul grew up. As he's Saul of Tarsus, he would have been appalled at any Jew that was willing to take his business, his legal business, before the Gentile courts. But as a believer, now with the Spirit of God and as a student of the Word of God, he... Uh, announces a new principle for new reasons in 1 Corinthians 6, beginning at verse 1. So I'll invite you to turn with me there in your Bibles, if you've not turned already, and look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 1. And we're going to read through verse 8 and then go back and look at some of these verses. When one of you has a grievance against an another, does he dare to go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. Let's pray about this as we discuss it. Father, I ask you to be our teacher. I ask you to give us wisdom and by your spirit to teach us uh, how to apply the principles that you've communicated clearly and forcefully 
through the pen of the Apostle Paul by the inspiration of your spirit. Thank you for this teaching. Make it clear and apply it to our hearts uh, according to the need of the moment. We ask in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. The first sentence, chapter 6, verse 1. In some translations begin, How dare you sue one another? A lawyer friend of mine 40 years ago was John MacArthur's lawyer, a guy named Sam Erickson. Uh, Sam Erickson taught a Sunday school class of two or three hundred people at Grace Church 40 years ago, and he sent me an audio cassette recording, if you're old enough to remember what an audio cassette was. But I played his tape once, and Sam began by saying, you know, I, I'm, not a, I'm a lawyer, I'm not a Greek scholar, but I did study some Greek commentaries uh, and Greek dictionaries, and I studied the phrases, and I found out that what this phrase really means is, how dare you? sue one another. He says, now I went to some English commentators and some theologians and experts on the language and the culture and, and got their insight as to really what this phrase means. And he said, what it really means is, how dare you sue one another? He said, there's no escaping it. Paul is stunned. He's talking to a church who's been letting a man live with his mother-in-law or excuse me, his stepmother, and they've done nothing about that, but he finds it almost more shocking that there are lawsuits that are flagrant. They are widespread in this fellowship. Now, maybe some of them came out of what they've been tolerating in the church when there are people sleeping around with other people's spouses. Sometimes that breaks out into a fight or a lawsuit. And so who knows, maybe the tolerance of their licentiousness in this community had resulted also in the tolerance of litigation. Uh, but in any event, chapter 6, verse 1 uses the phrase, when one of you has a grievance against another, grievance simply means a dispute, and against another means against another believer. It's clear from the rest of the context He's not just talking here about a lawsuit against anybody else. Now, some of the principles he teaches would apply to that as well. When he says it's wrong to be greedy, grasping, cheating, lying, deceitful, fraudulent toward your brother in Christ when you're in court, well, the same thing would apply when you sue an unbeliever. It's wrong to be greedy, grasping, get more money than you deserve, cheat and lie in order to try to work the system. But his focus here is not... Christians in the culture, doing business in the culture, having to go to court over some business or commercial dispute, uh, or even a serious personal injury against some non-believer. That's not his point here. His point is that there are lawsuits between believers against brothers in Christ, as you called it this morning when you prayed together about the funeral you saw yesterday, and the brother testified this was family Loving a family. That's the picture of the church. They'll know you're Christians by your love for one another. And if the church meetings are people gossiping about, did you know he's sleeping with her and she's sleeping with him and he's running around on them? Well, I, I, I'm going to sue that person. I don't think they deserve to be in the church. Church won't do anything about it, so I'm going to take it to court. They're bringing their intrapersonal differences and disputes and arguments within the church family and running down to court 
and taking them to court. The, we don't know a lot of history about the Corinthian legal system, but they were so close to Athens. We've got lots of information about the Athenian legal system, and the historical records show that juries were comprised of about 201 persons. We have 12-man juries in Jackson County, and I usually pick two or three alternates in case somebody gets sick during the trial. They had 201 jurors on the average trial court panel in an Athenian court. And if the case was more important and the lawyers thought, I want a broader cross-section of the community, they had panels of up to 1,000, and in some reported cases, 6,000 people. It'd take an arena to have the jury trial where you had 6,000 jurors. But before you could go to court, the Athenian system said, we're going to start with mandatory arbitration, private arbitration first. You hire an arbitrator, the, other, the opposing party would hire an arbitrator, and those two arbitrators would pick a third neutral. And the three arbitrators would try to work out an agreement, some agreed solution. But if the parties wouldn't agree to what the arbitrators recommended, then they'd take it to their panels of 200 to 6,000 people and tell it to the town. And it was, uh, as I say, like a spectator sport for folks to say, well, we'd go downtown today instead of let's go to a ball game at Royal Stadium. They'd say, let's go down and sit on a jury. So if you're over 30 years old, you'd qualify to sit. If you're 60 years, during your 60th year, you were required to be made available to be one of the arbitrators because if the private arbitration didn't work, they would appoint three public arbitrators and that would include anybody who was uh, susceptible to be appointed if they were age 60 during that year and then otherwise it would go to, to this legal process. So the Apostle Paul is faced with, and, and here's the reports of the fact that there are numerous, not just one or two, not isolated instances, but shot through the Corinthian church were legal disputes, arguments against one another. We don't know what he means by trivial cases, but Paul uses the phrase that these were trivial cases. Uh, now, if you were going to file a small claim in Jackson County Circuit Court, our state statute says that's a, a case up to $5,000. That's small claims court. And then up to $75,000 can go to associate circuit court, and $75,000 over can go to the circuit court, the regular trial court, uh, and then you're automatically entitled to appeal to the Court of Appeals, and if the Missouri Supreme Court wants to hear it, you're entitled to hear that, and the tax system pays for all of that legal process. That's statute law. And Missouri Constitution provided detailed text terms set jurisdictional limits. 1 Corinthians 6 is not a statute law. It is not the Ten Commandments. It is Paul's teaching to a particular church principles that apply to their facts based on what he knows about their spiritual condition. He is scolding them for taking small claims court type matters to 201 person juries or more and telling the whole community about the petty bickering or the nasty immoral relationships and misconduct going on, the name calling. Well, I'm of Apollos. Well, you are a dirty scum sucking dog if you follow that Apollos. How dare you? That's slander. And even their internal church-related, spiritually-related, biblically-related differences. They're running off to tell that to a jury of 201 
Athenians or Corinthians who were not members of their local uh, assembly. And the Apostle Paul says in uh, the remainder of that section of, of verse 1, dare you go to law, meaning do you go to the government court system? Uh, and he says uh, the lawsuits between believers is different from what rules might apply to just engaging in the business and the culture and the legal system. The legal system is not corrupt. He just says it's not fit for disputes between Christians. And so he says in six one, how dare before you go before the unrighteous instead of the saints. That's the tail end of verse 1. Unrighteous means unbelievers. It doesn't mean that the judge or the juror is dishonest or immoral or a corrupt person. He may be a morally upstanding pagan. He may have a wonderful education. He may have very good character. He may carefully follow the government's rules in trying to decide your case. But he does not know God. And he does not have indwelling him the Holy Spirit of God. And he does not turn to and have access to or understanding of the Word of God. And for those reasons, the Apostle Paul, inspired by the Spirit of God, says those people who are, quote, unrighteous, they are unjustified, they're not saints, that the non-saints are incompetent to handle to discern and decide spiritual disputes. Well, spiritual disputes about greed and money and name-calling doesn't sound very spiritual to me. It's spiritual because they're in the family. You can't avoid the fact that these people who say we believe the Bible together, we've been saved by the same Spirit, we're baptized into one baptism, we're in the same family of God, and we're fighting over the name-calling, the disputes, the property, arguments that we have, money, property, business. We're arguing about that and, and uh, t taking those kinds of disputes to, to uh, secular courts. He says, the, the person who's not been saved does not have the Holy Spirit and he cannot exercise wisdom and discernment like a saint, even the least qualified, the least experienced, uh, uh, born-again believer has the Spirit of God inside of him, and that qualifies him to hear your disputes. So he says, why would you take it to the unrighteous instead of the saints? And that means telling your case to believers in your church family. Saints are not a special group of holy people who've done miracles, and after they're dead, they've been canonized or granted sainthood status by a church. Some churches see saints that way. The New Testament says you're a saint if you're a believer. You're set apart. You're a child of God. You're called a saint in Scripture, and you're eligible to be on a jury. The other reason why the Apostle Paul says it's wrong to take your disputes to the unjust judges and juries is because to do so shows that you do not know your spiritual identity and destiny. Or he's asking them, do you not know what your spiritual destiny is, what God has planned for you, what he's created you for. The words of verse six, uh, chapter 6, verse 2 say, Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? That's your destiny. 
Didn't you know that you're going to judge the world? And we all say together, no, didn't know that. Is that right? Yeah, Paul says, you're going to judge the world. And if you start searching back through Scripture, you will find places where Jesus describes the fact he will return to earth someday. And as you look around, it could be any day. It's coming soon. I heard a Bible teacher say yesterday, if you're not a conspiracy theorist, you're not paying much attention to the conspiracy. (laughs) There's a conspiracy. Powers and principalities conspiring together against the angels of God. But God's going to win this. He's got a plan. He's going to interrupt and disrupt. And he's going to come back and establish his kingdom. And when he does, he's coming back and he's already promised that his saints are going to reign with Christ. Revelation 3.21 says that we'll be co-regents who will be co-seated on the throne beside Christ. We'll be on the supreme court in eternity on planet earth uh, and Daniel 7 2 says the saints will sit with Christ in the seat of judgment Revelation 2 26 and 7 say the saints will rule over nations someday will rule the world with Christ on his supreme court it is our destiny to sit on the supreme court with Christ someday so surely if that's what what God has planned for you You could trust that he has equipped you, he's qualified you to hear a small claims dispute between some member of the church. And yet, unbelievers are taking their disputes to unbelievers. But verse 2 ends in chapter 6, and if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Look at verse 3, do you not know that we are to judge angels? And we pause and say, no, no, didn't know that. What's that about? And Paul doesn't tell us. Are we judging the angels? But he tells us, he gives us Holy Spirit-inspired insight now that God's plan for you, boy and girl, mom and dad, grandma, grandpa, young believer, old believer, God's plan for you is going to sit on the Supreme Court and judge the world, and you're going to judge angels is that the fallen angels? Maybe. Is that the unfallen angels who are just going to rule over them? We're told that we were created a little lower than the angels, but he's going to elevate us in our glorified bodies to be above the angels in governance. God has planned for you to judge angels. Do you think you could handle a small claims case today if your church did its duty to address, to make a process available to Uh, address those issues instead of saying, no, just take it to court. We're too busy here. We really wouldn't want to get bogged down in those kinds of things. Just take it to court. The Apostle Paul is stunned. Verse 4, he says, So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? God has made all the saints competent uh, to use their spiritual discernment. They have the Spirit of God indwelling them, and they know and have access to the Word of God. Unbelievers are incompetent. Verse 5 and 6 says, I say this to your shame. Can it be there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to the law against brother, and that before unbelievers. Verses 5 and 6, the Apostle Paul says, You should be ashamed to choose a government jury. 
You should be ashamed, he says, to choose a government jury. Verse 7 and 8 says, To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. So here he puts the spotlight on the spiritual heart attitude that makes these lawsuits before the lost world so wrong is they've gone to cheating each other. They've picked up all the habits of the court system and the lawyer's advice in world in worldly uh, unrighteous legal practice and legal practices and, and they're engaging because they well that's just that's what we do in the law is we lie on the witness stand and we try to get more money than uh, we're really entitled to he says you should be ashamed because you have disgraced the church before the world now every Bible commentator that I've looked at this week makes this point that they read 1 Corinthians 6, 1 to 8, and they say what Paul is saying is that if, when you take these disputes to the world, the world is watching and say, look at the Christians behaving just like non-Christians. They say they've been changed by the Spirit of God, and they're different because they obey the Word of God. There's no difference between them. They all want money, sex, and power just like we do, and they're fighting in court to get it, get their rights. And that's a true principle, that we can destroy our, testi our testimony before the world by our ungodly living and our ungodly behavior in the church or outside the church. But as I look through this passage, I don't see that as being the principal reason why the Apostle Paul says you should be ashamed. Because the world is watching. We, we don't want to upset the world. But God's not nearly as concerned about us upsetting the world as we are about upsetting him. God's watching. That's the important thing. Not that we're about the world is watching and we'll run our testimony. God who created you for a purpose and for a great purpose, to be on the Supreme Court someday to judge the world and to judge angels, he's equipped you with supernatural power beyond your wildest imagination and discernment abilities with the Spirit of God indwelling you as you look at the Word of God and look at the facts of your friends and you can resolve those disputes. And to not do so is a disgrace to God, not just a disgrace before a watching world. We're dishonoring God by foolishly choosing an incompetent jury instead of recognizing that the glory of salvation that your brother's uh, and sisters are in the church. Consider this description by C.S. Lewis. Lewis says, here's a description of what, if, if we could see with spiritual eyes, and fast forward five years, ten years, a thousand years, and you were to look around this room, here's what, what you would see. He says, it's a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses. To remember that the dullest, most uninteresting person that you can talk to may one day be a creature which if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship or else it would look like a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, uh, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long we are in some degree helping each other to one or the other of these destinations. It's in the light of these overwhelming possibilities it is with the awe and the circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all of our dealings with one another, all friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. 
nations, cultures, arts, whom we joke with, uh, uh, or nations, cultures, and arts, these are mortal and their life is to ours like the life of a gnat. But it is immortals that we joke with, the people that we rub shoulders with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit, go to church with. These are either immortal horrors or their everlasting splendors. God's created you to be a splendorous associate justice on the Supreme Court of Heaven, co-seated, co-resurrected, co-ruling, co-reigning with Him. And He wants you to know who you are, your identity, your destiny, so you'll feel confident to help your brothers and sisters apply the Word of God to their disputes. And it offends the Almighty God for us to say, I see what He's given me, but I'd rather tell it to a first grader. Because uh, imagine if you had a case that involved a dispute about a patent that would involve technical rocket science, let's say. And, you, and you're going to have to take it to court. Your lawyer says, we're, we're going to need to arbitrate this before in a AAA American Arbitration Association panel of rocket science experts because nobody else could really understand this. But we've got a panel at AAA and we can go get expert arbitrators. And you say, no, I, I've got some folks out in the neighborhood who are preschoolers. I've seen some preschoolers playing around a puddle. And, and let, let's go tell my rocket science patent claim to them. Your lawyer and everybody you knew would say, you are a fool. What sense would it make to tell your complex case to people incompetent to understand the least detail about what you're talking about? Apostle Paul says that's the way it is for you to go to the jury of 201 in Corinth or for the jury of 12 in Jackson County or a judge in small claims court who doesn't know the first thing about the biblical principles involved in your relationship in your local church, and you ought to tell it to the church. And the church should be willing to set up a process to handle and receive and resolve these issues because we're more than competent to address these issues. So, in closing, a couple of practical applications. Number one, the church has a duty to provide a process to resolve disputes in the church family. In chapter 5, Paul rebuked the church for tolerating evil and acting like tolerance was a virtue. He said tolerating evil is no virtue. Intolerance toward evil is no vice. And they had the duty to call sin, sin, be able to label you. Likewise, have a duty when it comes to disputes, not to say, well, nobody should have disputes. You should all just get along. That's not true back in the first grade class or preschool class today. Those kids will fuss and they need adult supervision. Help them get along. And any Christians living in community will have disputes about property, about their feelings, about their words, about uh, their legal rights, about business transactions. But especially among the small claims type issues, the church is more than competent to address those with the additional insight that Scripture gives us that can expose the heart. Rather, what's your heart attitude here? Are you determined to destroy this person? You want revenge? You want 
to exact your pound of flesh, to get, you want to hurt them and not just to get fair compensation or get restitution of what was wrongly taken from you. We shouldn't just say, everybody just be a doormat, get walked over. Don't ever talk about your disputes or differences when people mistreat you or violate your rights. There are scriptural rights regarding property that the Word of God respects. And the people of God in the church of God are competent to help believers work through the spiritual dynamics of giving, giving up their rights or making compromises regarding their rights. Uh, and so uh, the church has a duty to provide that kind of process. Uh, in, in my law practice 30 plus years ago, the uh, Christian Legal Society developed a, a process called the Christian Mediation Service. Uh, it was started by a lawyer named Laurie Eck out in Albuquerque and another lawyer named Ken Sandy took it over uh, in the late 90s and he wrote a book called The Peacemaker. Uh, and you could get a copy of the book The Peacemaker on Amazon by Ken Sandy, S-A-N-D-E, and it'll provide you some principles on peacemaking within a local congregation, even some sample rules that could be followed. To help. So there's some rules of fairness about how we would go about the process of, a, of having people in the church address uh, disputes about legal relationships and legal issues. Uh, but Ken Sandy and his organization have helped churches and Christians work through everything from construction disputes with outside contractors uh, to divorce and custody and child support type cases. Anything that the courts could handle with the parties agreeing to, they could handle those kinds of cases. The other practical application I wanted to make, however, is that going to government courts is not always wrong. We started with the principle that God has ordained civil government. He's not saying, and Paul is not saying in this passage, that you should deplore and abhor the civil legal system. It is in a system that attempts to be fair, and there are many Christian judges that I appear before, and many of the jurors that I present evidence to are Christians. So it's not something that's corrupt and to always be avoided, and there are some kinds of cases and certain circumstances where other passages of Scripture tell us that the Christian has freedom in prayer to the Holy Spirit to ask, Lord, what should I do in this case? And it won't be true for everybody. They won't all do the same thing. For example, Jesus was beat to an inch of his life. And when Pilate said, are you the Christ, the Son of the living God? Do, do you plead guilty to these charges of blasphemy? Scripture says Jesus spoke not a word. He would not incriminate himself. He wouldn't let them convict him out of his own mouth. So he just refused to answer their questions. Now, he could have appealed that every step of this legal process is corrupt and broken. You're breaking laws by the way you're handling the trial of Jesus. But he didn't. Like a sheep before his shears, Isaiah said, he spoke not a word, didn't open his mouth. The Apostle Paul was just about to be whipped by a Roman tribute when the Apostle Paul turned and looked up at him. He says, is this the way you treat a Roman citizen? And the guy stopped his whip in the down stroke. He said, oops. You mean you're a Roman citizen? Yes, I am. Oh, well, no, sir. No, you're right. I, can't, I didn't know. And he said, well, you bought your citizenship tribute. I was born a Roman, and I, ha I know my rights. 
And so he exercised his rights to avoid the whip. And then he appealed his case to Felix, a governor, and then finally to Caesar himself. Because every step of the way, every appeal, he worked in the gospel. He did it for the sake of the gospel. Jesus spoke not a word, waived his legal rights, was abused, horrendously violated. Because they thought they were in control. But for the sake of the cross and your salvation, he waived his rights. The Apostle Paul asserted his rights for the sake of the gospel. Saint, you are competent under the leadership of the indwelling Holy Spirit as you read the Word of God and apply the facts to your case and get counsel from pastors and teachers and friends in your family, the family of God. You're competent to decide, I think the Lord wants me to give up my rights in this case and to not sue. Or to decide, I think the Lord wants me to file a lawsuit. What if you've made the appeal to the other side and you've asked, they, they, they've said, uh, we're Christians, but we're not, uh, we don't think you should sue us. We think it would violate 1 Corinthians 6. And you say, well, we, then we'd like to tell it to the church. We've got a process here. Let's both read Peacemaker and let's pick three people in the church to decide this dispute. And they say, no, we're not going to do that either. We'd rather you take our chances in court. But we don't think you can sue us, so we got you. Catch 22. Uh, Matthew chapter 18 says that when you've got a dispute with a person, someone who's offended you, you've got an offense against them, you go to them privately and ask them to repent. And if they don't, then you go with two witnesses and you ask them to repent. And if they don't, then you tell it to the church. Here we're back to 1 Corinthians 5 and 6. The church is competent. And it says, and if they won't listen to the church, either they refuse to go or they get the judgment of the church and they refuse to obey it, this is, then you treat them like a pagan and a tax gatherer. How's that? Like an unbeliever. You'd have the freedom to take them to court, in my opinion. But don't trust Mike Whitehead's opinion. You ask the Spirit of God, Lord, will you give me peace to take this dispute to court, a secular court, to follow the secular law because these people refuse to submit to the alternative resolution process that the church has provided. Uh, th there are other cases that clearly are within the jurisdiction of the government and not just the church. It may be, somebody may be engaging in a sin, but it's also a crime. And if what they've done is a crime, you've got a duty in many cases to report that crime to civil authorities and let them deal with their process. That's going to law against a brother. But it, there, where it's your duty under the law, then Romans 13 says we submit to civil magistrates and civil authority. We do that by reporting criminal offenses when we're required to report them. But we still, within the church, treat it as a sin in violation of the, the, the church's standards, and we engage in our church discipline process separate from, in addition to, the government process. But we can't say, oh, we don't want to take this brother to law because 1 Corinthians 6 says we should try to settle it privately among ourselves, so let's not report this crime. A serious violation, in my judgment, of 1 Corinthians, uh, Romans 13 where we must submit to civil authorities, especially in matters that are criminal. Or in cases that are probate court proceedings, the probate courts will uh, apply and interpret 
wills and trusts, family law actions, divorce cases, custody cases, other statutory regulatory cases. They're within the jurisdiction of the government courts, uh, and in some cases you've got a duty to only use that process uh, or to first use that process, but the, the church may also have a separate role, but you shouldn't say the church's role is exclusive in some cases. There is concurrent jurisdiction. And civil matters that involve a trust. If I gave you a loan and you said, well, I can pay this back to you in a week, and so I give you $100, and next week you don't pay me back. It's my money. I can sue you in small claims court. I could just say, I've prayed about it, and I'm just going to say to tell you, brother, you said you'd pay me back, and I'm taking you at your word. I think you ought to pay me back, but I'm going to just pray for you, and I'm going to forgive that debt. I have the right to forgive debts due me that are my own money. But if you gave me a, a uh, trust deposit that was supposed to be a payment, let's say, to a probate court, and I've got to take the money you gave me and pay a filing fee so we can probate a will that you've retained me to engage. And you give me cash, and during church, I make a loan to some church member of your cash. And then that church member doesn't pay me back. And then I go to you and I say, I'd like to get that money back, and I'm sure you would too. But I just prayed about it, and I think the Lord's told me I should just forgive that brother who's taken the money wrongfully. I don't have the right to waive your rights if you've trusted me and I've got a duty as your lawyer, trustee, or we call it a fiduciary, I've got a duty of trust to go after and recover the money that belonged to you. Now, you, you can tell me to waive it, but let's suppose you're dead. And the law says I have a duty as the fiduciary to protect the interests of the person that cannot speak for themselves. So there are a variety of cases that would be exceptions to the apparent rule because it's not a statute law. It's not the 11th commandment, thou shalt not sue one another. It's a principle that applies in the context of these facts and circumstances that were typical to the Corinthians and there are parallels to today. But you decide under the leadership of the Word of God and the Spirit of God with the good counsel from godly saints. When should you go to a civil court and when should you just waive your rights? And God can bless either circumstance. Uh, with that, I'm going to close us in prayer. Let your music minister come and lead us in our closing song. Father, thanks for this time to study uh, these, this difficult principle. Uh, and, and yet it's a glorious principle when we think about the destiny you've got that you've started by depositing the Spirit of God in us and beginning to transform us for purposes of glory uh, that would even sit on the Supreme Court with you someday. We can hardly imagine it, but you told us it's true. So help us obey you and trust you when it comes to resolving our disputes in the church family. We ask it that Jesus would be honored in our community and in our fellowship. In his name we pray, amen.